listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Paul's going to talk about worship this morning, but he's not going to talk about worship as a responsibility. He's going to talk about worship as a response. It's a response. That's why he's just now bringing it up in chapter 12. Y'all, we have been through six months, 11 chapters of Romans, and so far, Paul hasn't told us to do anything. Not a thing. And some of you are really practical people. You've probably come frustrated. All right, tell me what to do, and I'll do it. And for six months, we haven't told you to do anything. Good news. Today's your day. We're going to tell you to do some stuff. And here's why. This is a pattern you'll see. It's in Romans. It's in Ephesians. Here's the pattern. you got to know who God is and what he has done before you can do anything. And so over and over in Scripture, again, it's going to tell you who God is, what he's done, before they tell you to do a single thing. Because it's a response. It's a response to what he's done. Here's the thing about the response. A response needs to be appropriate. You know, I used to think we all just naturally, this is before I had kids, before I had kids, I thought we all just naturally know how to respond in an appropriate way. I mean, it's not that hard, right? Then I had kids, and I figured out, no, that's something you have to teach them. You have to teach them how to respond appropriately when somebody walks up to them and says hello. Some of you, some of you in this room have been growled at by one of my kids, (laughs) and all you did was walk up and say hello, and they said, grrr. Some of you have been laughed at by my children, and they ran away from you. Or some of you, have just they just acted like you just, your voice wasn't working, words were not coming out of your mouth, and they just stared blankly at you, right? we got to teach our kids how to respond appropriately. So what is an appropriate response to our Creator, the God of the universe? Paul's going to call it spiritual worship. That's an interesting word, the, the word spiritual the original Greek word is logikos, and you hear logical in that, right? So wait a minute, we're taking a word that means logical, and we're translating it spiritual. That doesn't make any sense. What's going on here? What? Because it's a, man, it's a big word. It's packed with meaning, and we don't have one English word that carries all that meaning, and it's a word that was used in worship in that day. And not just Jewish worship, not just Christian worship, even pagan worship, they used this word, logikos. And it was kind of a, a comparison. And so there would be logikos worship that they understood as truly appropriate worship, and they contrasted it to superficial worship or inauthentic worship. I'm going through the motions worship. I'm doing all the right things, but my mind and my heart is a million miles away. Uh, Jewish worshipers use this. They, they described logikos worship as the mental and spiritual inner attitude that's necessary for a sacrifice to have any meaning before God. Without that, you're just, again, you're just, you're just going through the, the motions. And so you could translate it true, proper, appropriate. So the logical piece is, in relation to what God has done, this is logical. This is, makes sense. This is the only thing fitting and appropriate. That's the kind of worship he's going to talk about. And so he's saying true worship is an appropriate response to who God is and what he has done. Okay, so keep that in mind, who God is, what he has done, and ask yourself the question again, what is worship? 
What does an appropriate response look like to who God is and what he's done? And here's what's interesting. Paul's not going to say a thing about the, the songs that we sing, whether they were written before 1900 or after. He's not going to talk at all about whether we put our hands up or not, and he's not going to talk at all about where we drive to and what days of the week. He's not going to talk about any of that. Here's what Paul's going to tell us this morning. True worship is a whole life offered from a transformed heart. A whole life offered from a transformed heart. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Romans 12. Romans 12, and y'all, I don't know that this has happened the whole time I've been at Bethel. We're only studying two verses today, not our normal 25. So two verses, Romans 12, verse 1 through 2. I'll read, and you read along with me. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So he starts off with an appeal. Here we go. After 11 chapters, I'm going to ask you to do something. Here's my appeal, but that appeal is therefore, in light of, therefore, the mercies of God. Here's, he's just saying this appeal only exists because of the mercies of God. What are those? Well, that's the first 11 chapters. That's everything we've talked about because, again, worship here, it's a response, not a responsibility. We've already started with who God is and what he's done. So Paul's already explained to us that he is, Jesus Christ has been your propitiation, your substitute penalty payment. You were guilty and he paid the price. And he did it. Listen, listen, not, not when you were really wanting to have a closer relationship with him and really wanting to follow him. No, no, no. While you were his enemy, while you were a God hater, is what he said. He did that. He's already explained to us that Jesus, though he knew no sin, he became sin. He took on all of your sin, and in exchange, he said, all my righteousness, all, not, not your goodness, not your righteousness, the righteousness of God, here it is, as a gift, it's yours. By faith, it's a gift. And he's already explained to that because of who God is and what he's done, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Nothing in this world, no super scary, crazy demon, nothing. Nothing you can think of or imagine can separate you from the love of Christ. So when you remember that first 11 chapters, what can you call it but mercy? It's the mercies of God. And Paul's saying, okay, those mercies that we've talked about, that's the foundation that any worship has to be built upon. And then he gives us two imperatives, two things to do. Two things to do in his appropriate response. And they can be summed up with consecration and cooperation. Consecration and cooperation. You put these two together and it creates a radical version of worship. It would have been radical then, it's radical today. Because he is demolishing the two versions of false worship that have always existed. And they can carry all kinds of titles happen in all kinds of churches, and really at any church, in any religion, or even being an atheist. These are the two false versions of worship. Here's the first one. First one says, worship is only about my heart, not my body. So worship is really on the inside, not the outside. And this was prevalent in Paul's Greco-Roman culture. They believed the body was bad. It was negative. It was decaying, and it's what carried all the evil. And so 
our spirituality, the way, the way we related to God, really only involved our mind and our soul. That's how we connect with God. That's how we relate to God. And this body, this meat suit I got on, it's just holding me back. And then one day, when everything's perfect, we won't, we won't have bodies anymore. We'll just, we'll just be kind of ethereal souls floating around. Of course, it wasn't just then. We see that today. Many of us, just the way we naturally think, we tend to think, you know, you know what's most important is my intentions. My intentions are what matter most. And so you could go, we could go over there to Brookshire's right now, and we could ask 10 people, hey, are you against poverty? And 10 people will say, yes, absolutely, I'm against poverty. And then you ask, okay, what do you do about it? And they'll say, no, 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 that's not what I meant. No, 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 no. What I mean is, on the inside, I have a negative feeling about poverty, you know? And so maybe, yeah, but if someone talks about it on Instagram, I'll, I'll go ahead and like it. I'll do that, you know? Because we're not talking about what I do externally. My intentions are what's most important. We, we see this when all over our world when we talk about, you know, who I really am. Who I really am is who I am on the inside. And our culture has bought that so much to such an extent that we say, hey, if, if my physical, my body, my outward appearance doesn't match who I am on the inside... Well, I could change this all up. This doesn't matter. This isn't me. What's me is the me on the inside. Of course we see that. And we, we see this in the Christian circles. And we think, I think most of us just naturally think at best, at best, my body, my physical appearance and what I do, at best it's like neutral in my spiritual life. So my spiritual life is mostly, it's in my head, it's in my heart, my thinking, and my, in my feeling. And so many of us think of worship as solely this internal experience. And sure, I may have this internal experience with next to other people who are also having an internal experience. And to this, Paul says, no, 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 no. True worship, true worship requires consecration. He says, present your bodies. That word present, it means to consecrate. It's a, it's a sacrificial system word. When you brought an animal to the altar, you were consecrating that animal to worship. Uh, it can mean uh, to offer to somebody or to put at the disposal of. So here's one way to think about it. If I threw you my car keys and I said, here's my car. It's uh, only a Toyota Corolla, so have fun with that. Uh, don't go mud hogging or anything. I said, it's at your disposal. Does that mean, hey, I want you to go run an errand for me? No. It means it's yours to use for your purpose. I've offered it to you at your disposal. And so the idea is to give something over to someone for their intended purpose. And know what, notice what he says to consecrate. Our bodies. Consecrate your bodies. You know, I, I was studying this all week, and the other day I looked in the mirror. I was like, really? <laughs> what does God want with my body? I mean, it's clearly not in shape. It's not all that attractive. I've had a crick in my neck going on about three weeks now. Really, God, this is what you want? Understand what he's saying here. He's not not mainly saying God is interested in the attractiveness of your body, praise the Lord. He's interested in the use of your body. Your physical, actual, real interactions in a physical, actual, real world. That's what God's interested in. 
He's picking up something he started in chapter 6. In Romans 6, he says this, to offer, it's the same word, consecrate, to offer the different parts of our body as instruments of righteousness and not as instruments of sin. And so he's saying your, your eyes, your ears, your nose, your toes, your arms, your legs, they can be put at the disposal of sin or they can be put at the disposal of God. And so what he's saying here is when we choose to put those things at, disposable, at the disposal of God, that's worship. That's worship. He calls it a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice. And what he's doing, he's taking this temple worship imagery and he's twisting it a little bit. So in temple worship, they would often uh, bring sacrifices, bring animals to sacrifice. And there was two really different categories. One was sin offerings. And so you would take this perfect, unblemished animal and it would be sacrificed at the altar. And the imagery was that animal was innocent, but it's paying for your sin. Well, that's not what he's talking about here. He is not calling you to come bring a sacrifice for your sin. Why not? That's what Jesus was. Jesus was our sin offering. He's paid for our sin. It's paid for and it's done. But there's a second category of worship, of sacrifice, that was called a burnt offering. And this was used simply for worship. They, there was no sense of understanding that this was paying for my sin in any way. And what they do, they bring an animal, a whole animal, and they'd offer up that whole animal, and it would be burned, and that animal had to be a valuable, spotless animal. Why? Because we're responding appropriately to who God is and what He's done. So the best we have is what's appropriate. And when they would put that animal on the fire, guess what? It smelled like barbecue. It smelled good. And this pleasant aroma went up. And so that was the picture, this pleasing aroma going up to God, and He was pleased, but But here's what the Bible makes clear. God wasn't pleased mostly with the aroma. God was pleased because it represented complete consecration and devotion to God, and that's what pleased him. And so Paul's changing it a little bit here. Because all those animals, they died doing that sacrifice, didn't they? What Paul's talking about here is a living killing, a living killing. And so he's saying, listen, the way I worship is not to bring something else physical. I bring myself. This is the physical thing that I'm burning. But I don't offer up my death. I offer up my life. That's the picture here. That's what we mean when we say a whole life offered. It includes every area of our physical lives. It means to be willing to obey God in anything, he says, in any area of my life. Because it's, it's at his disposal. It's consecrated to him. It means to be willing to receive anything he sends to me in any area of my life. See, our, our tendency is to compartmentalize worship, to reduce worship, where it's only on the inside. And so man, if I can close my eyes and I can pray and I can, I can say the songs and somehow I can find a way to mean it, that's worship. And listen, those things are good. They are good and they are gifts God has given us to help us relate to him and, and to know him. But God says, all of your life is worship. All of it. Men and women, worship is not just in the cloud. In the words of the band Boston, it's more than a feeling. It's every area of our physical lives, from big to little. So, so your marriage, how you talked to one another out there before you 
Amen. How you eat your breakfast in the morning, how you tie your shoes. He's saying, I want each and every one of those to be an embodiment, a physical reality of the mercies of God, of who He is and what He has done. There's an old story that illustrates this. The, some lady came up to her pastor after church service. He'd been preaching about consecration, and she asked, well, Pastor, will you please tell me in a word what your idea of consecration is? And the pastor he held out a blank sheet of paper handed it to her and said, it is to sign your name at the bottom of this blank sheet of paper and let God fill it in with what he will. That's consecration. True life or true worship is a whole life offered. And then he gets to the second period. Here's the second thing you do. And it kind of has two parts. It's got a negative and a positive. So he says, don't be conformed. Don't do that. But positively, be transformed. And here he's addressing the the second form of false worship, and it's the one Paul was probably most familiar with. It's the one he had lived his life in the most. And it's this view of worship that says, worship is about my body, but not my heart. Worship is about what I do. As long as I'm doing the right things, what's going on on the inside? Far less important. This is the Phariseeism that Paul grew up in. He knew this. And he knew that any Pharisee that had been reading so far, if they were still tracking with him, still reading, had gone through 11 chapters and was just saying, okay, that's great, but just tell me what to do. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. Fast, no problem. Give to the poor, I'll do it. Double. Pray, how many times a day? Offer sacrifices, I can do that. Avoid anything unclean, no problem. And Jesus, when he was on this earth, he, he looked at the people who had worked the hardest at that and said, you're whitewashed tombs. You're whitewashed tombs on, on the outside, beautiful. On the inside, death and decay and you stink. That's the picture he was painting. Of course, of course we see this in our world today. We think of worship as only what I do. So I go to church, I serve, I read my Bible, I tithe. Maybe it's about what I don't do. You know, I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. That's how I heard it growing up. So that Paul says, listen, listen. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. It's this idea of resisting pressure. Resist the pressure to be squeezed into the mold of the world. That's the picture he's painting here. So we've got to address what the world is. The New Testament actually talks about this concept of the world. The, the word literally means this age. And throughout the Bible, it means our society, our system, our culture that man has built independent of God. It's all the things we do in order to make ourselves happy without God. And it, this world is self-centered, self pleasing, self-indulgent, and self-concerned. The New Testament says that the God, the prince of this world, is Satan. So we, we think we're building this to be so independent and free and do what we want. Actually, we're putting ourselves under the dominion of Satan. In 1 John 2, John talks about the ways this world pressures us to fit into this mold, the way it pressures us to conform to its pattern. He says, the world's constantly trying to keep us in its system through the lust of the eyes, the lust 
of the flesh and the pride of life. And I invite you to go home today and watch a series of commercials, and you'll see they're appealing to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, pressuring you to fit into its mold. But the New Testament also says, if you're a believer today, Christ died to deliver us from this world. It says, you have been crucified to this world, and this world has been crucified to you. You're separated from it. You're dead to it. But notice, God, when, as soon as we become Christians, he doesn't automatically just beam us up to heaven. Have you ever wondered why not? I mean, if the goal is to worship him as best we can, to know him as best we can, to be free of sin, the easiest, best, most effective way to do that, just, as soon as you're a Christian, just... Right? That's not what he does. Because... He's not done with your body. He's not done with you in the physical world. And so New Testament says he keeps you in this world and sends you out on a mission. So you can think of a Christian like a submarine. If a submarine just stays on the ground all the time, never goes in the water, well, it's a waste. It's a big hunk of metal that somebody spent a lot of money on. It's not accomplishing its mission. It's not living out its purpose. But there's no water in it. You can say that, right? But, so it, out of the water, it's useless. It's, you could say it's isolated from the water. But in the water, it's got to stay insulated from it, right? If that water starts getting on the inside, the submarine is ruined. And that's the Christian in this world. We... We're in the world. We're not isolated from it. We're in it. We're in the water. But we don't conform to its pattern. We stay insulated from that water. We don't let that water leak in to the submarine, do you see? By the way, the pattern of this world can absolutely be religious activity. Absolutely. So to this, Paul says, no, 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 no. True worship requires cooperation. It requires your cooperation. Cooperation with what? Cooperation with what God is doing on the inside, in your heart. So he says, okay, don't be conformed. Instead, be transformed. Which, y'all, the language here is fascinating because it's a command. It is. He's telling you to do something. It is a command, but it's a passive command. It's a passive imperative. It's the language of cooperation. And so he doesn't say, transform yourself, right? He says, be transformed. And so it's a command to have something done to you. It's a command to receive the action of someone else. It's a command for you to cooperate with how God is transforming you. That word transform, it's the word metamorpho, which you hear in that metamorphosis. And that's, that's the picture. It describes the process by which... That which is on the inside shows forth on the outside so that everybody can see it. And so in this word, it necessarily happens from the inside out. And great analogy is the caterpillar and the butterfly. That caterpillar makes a cocoon around itself. And for a long time, there is some change. There is some metamorphosis going on on the inside there. A lot of work's being done. But eventually, that change bursts forth. And that butterfly pops out for everybody to see. That's the picture. It's a complete interchange of thoughts, wills, and desires. Here's what else is interesting to the language here. He's saying there's an order. There's an order to the two commands, to the two imperatives, but 
It's the opposite order of what he gave, what he gave them to us. So he's saying, we can present our bodies to the Lord as holy and acceptable sacrifices. Only, the only way we can do that is if we're transformed. So you got to do the second to be able to do the first. The offering of our bodies is the external evidence of the internal transformation. I think internal transformation, that is way harder than just external activity, isn't it? They say, how do I do that? Well, he says, by the renewing of your minds. And again, with that word minds, we've got to be careful here because we automatically think our thoughts, our logic, all the math that we're doing. But it's more than logic. There's a, a really interesting parallel verse. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.23, he tells us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Isn't that interesting? The spirit of our minds. What he's doing here, he's, he's encapsulating all of our internals, right? Both the logical and the spiritual that we usually separate. No, no, he's saying, no, they're together. And this is the way the Bible always handles the inner parts of us together. We like to separate them. So the Old Testament, you'll read a lot of times about the heart thinking. And we think that don't make any sense. No, no, the mind thinks and the heart feels. Well, they didn't see it that way. They didn't separate us that way. In the New Testament, the Greek culture focused more on the mind, so you'll read about the mind feeling. And again, we tend to think, no, no, mind thinks, heart feels. Those are different parts of us. But again, no, no, they say, the Scriptures say over and over again, no, it's not separate, it's together, it's the same. So it's not just the thoughts that we think, it does include that, but he's talking about the governing influence of our minds needs to be reoriented. Or you could even say, I think we tend to say today more, our hearts. Here, here's the best word I could come up with, our innards. Our innards, that's what he's talking about. And you know, sometimes I think, man, I, listen, I don't know if you all know this, English is my second language, redneck is my first language. And so sometimes I think if they would just put one redneck on some of these translating committees, I could understand what the Bible says sometimes. There's a lot of y'alls and all y'alls in the Bible that we miss because we're using proper English. Anyway, that was for free. He's talking about our inner. So, yes, our thoughts, but also our imaginations need to be captured with Christ. Our moral consciousness, our loves, our emotions, all of it needs to be captured with Him. And isn't that a good thing? I mean, if you think about it, probably about 95% of the decisions you're going to make today are not because... You do, you pause and do this logical math in your head about how you should respond to the thing your spouse just said that you don't appreciate. If that were true, I wouldn't get in trouble so many times, okay? No, no, all the time we're doing things physically, interacting, responding in ways that aren't just math. This This is how we work. It says all of that, the whole thing, all the innards can be renewed. The word is like reprogrammed. It's it's kind of an undoing of Romans 1. So it's been a long time since we studied Romans 1, but you may remember Romans 1, he paints this picture of this downward spiral. It says, okay, we, we worship the wrong things, and that leads to a darkening of our hearts and the depravity of our minds, and we'd spiral down to where God just has to give us over to it because we're so far gone. What we have here is an upward spiral. It's a recreating of what has been tarnished. Through Christ, we're renewed, we're made new again. And again, it's a, it's a command to co- cooperate. Who exactly are we 
cooperating with. Yes, God, but more specifically, the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, he's already talked about it. It's the Holy Spirit in believers who is actively working to renew us. It's interesting. You go read, go read everything Paul wrote, all of his letters. You could do a case study on this. You'll find that Paul is never confident. Not a single time is he at all confident in your ability to change yourself. Zero faith in that. But every time, all throughout the epistles, he is 100% confident of the Spirit's ability to change you. When, when the Spirit does this and we cooperate with it, this amazing result happens, he says. He's, he says the result of this reprogramming is that we can test and approve the will of God. You ever want to know? You ever said, I, I just wish I knew God's will? I want to know God's will? Here, he says you can. He says you can test it. That means you know it when you see it. You can spot it. And you say, that's from God. That's God's will. I know it. He says you can approve it. And I, and I struggle with that this week. How, what sense does God need me to approve of his will? But it's really, it's a, it's a wonderful phrase. It means not just to understand, but to agree with what God wants with a view of putting it into practice. So it means we feel so strongly that it's good that we dedicate our whole lives to it. And each and every one of us here this morning has approved of something. We've decided it's so good, I'm going to dedicate my whole life to it. That can be God's will. So again, much more than just intellectual knowledge, you know as a fact, thou shall not steal. It carries this experiential agreement. John Edwards, I thought, had a, a masterful illustration of this. I'm going to update it a little bit. But he said, let's say I was to set something in front of you and say, and ask you a question, is this sweet? And you were to make some intellectual, logical conclusions, you would say, well, it's brown. I hold it in my hand, it melts. It has the words Hershey written on, on it. And I know that my kids got it by dressing up in costumes and knocking on strangers' doors. Therefore, intellectually, I deduce that that is chocolate and it is sweet. How absurd would it be if you went your whole life and never tasted the chocolate, never experienced its sweetness? He says, this is why the simplest person can display holiness more than the most educated, because it's not just about head knowledge. It's not just about facts. At some point, they have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They tested and approved it. The Christians who are being transformed, we begin to experience, eternalize, and delight in God's will. We taste and we see God's goodness, and we approve it. Say, that's good. I'm afraid we, we miss so much when we reduce worship to just external Things about certain songs, certain times, certain places, certain actions. True worship has to flow from a transformed heart. We can't just fake it. We can't just go through the motions. We can't follow a, just follow a schedule. And I know because I've seen it, you've seen it, that this misunderstanding of worship caused many who were raised in the church to walk away from their faith. You know, they, and you can do this. You can do this in any... Christian organization, you can do this in any organization of any faith. You, you can go there and, and you can figure out, he, here's the set of behaviors that it looks like to be a Christian. And different organizations in different places in different parts of the world have a different kind of set, but you kind of figure out what they are and you say, okay, that's what I, this is what it looks like. And so as long as I do those things, this is the Christian life. 
And those things may be right and true and good, but without continual internal transformation, those things become exhausting and or unsatisfying. And so inevitably, you meet others who aren't Christians but are way happier than you. And they're not going through all the motions and working so hard. And so you say, well, I don't need this. You just give it all up. And this is, this is a tragic cycle. Again, we've all seen this. Well, that, that person walks away, and then that person they they become the cause of others walking away. You know, everyone else. They say, look. They were doing all the things. They were doing all the right things that I know I'm supposed to do and I'm working so hard to do, but clearly it was all a hoax. There was nothing true. There was no true internal transformation there. And so this, this whole thing must be a hoax. Listen, minute, when that is what is so important. It is so important. Each and every person here, each and every one of us have to make a decision. Each and every one of us have to decide. Is God able to transform people or not? Either God, either he's able to transform us in a way we cannot do on our own, or this is all just a show. This is all just a set of behaviors that we do to kind of feel better about ourselves. But if it's true, if the mercies of God are real and the Holy Spirit can take those mercies and transform me from the inside out and reprogram my heart, if that's true... What's the only appropriate response? Offering my whole life to a service. You see how this works? This is what Paul's saying. True worship is a whole life offered from a transformed heart. That's what it is. How do we, how do we work this into life? I mean, there's imperatives here. He, he, there are things he's wanting us to do. And you know what's interesting? Both of these imperatives are in the, the, the present tense. That means they're ongoing. They're continual. They're things we do every day. We never arrive at a point where we have done it in the past. We are always doing it. How do we do that? How do we always make sure we're consecrating ourselves and cooperating with the Spirit's work in our life? Let's talk about some ways we can cooperate with His transformation. You know, I think, I think the order Paul puts things in is very instructive for us. And so if you ever find yourself in a place where, yeah, the external's there, but internally, it's not matching up, you're exhausted, tired, indifferent to the things of God, angry at God, find yourself always arguing with Him about how He's not fair, we've all been there in those seasons. Listen, go back to the mercies of God. Go back to the first 11 chapters. Renew your attention on who he is and what he has done and take it off of yourself. Focus on him. There is simply no way to sustain a pattern of holiness in Christian, the Christian life without consistent meditation on God's mercy and grace. The way I would put it is, it's what our hearts feed on. It's the food it needs. I've heard so many people say, and it's true, you'll never grow in your spiritual life without regular time in God's Word. Why is that? Because without it, you're starving your heart. You're withholding the food that it needs, and it'll never grow. 
you know what? It's possible. In some ways, you've conformed to this pattern of the pattern of this world. And there's some other things that have captured your imagination and captured your heart. Maybe it's your pride and your success, and so you're always focused on work. Maybe it's your own comfort, so you're always focused on whatever you need to make your life a little bit easier. Maybe it's another person. Listen, even your family and your kids and your spouses, those are all wonderful things, but they make terrible gods. They really do. Ask God. Ask Him to remove those idols and replace them with a renewed focus on the mercies of God. The mercies of God are our cure. That's what we need. But you know what? There's another possibility of why it's hard to cooperate with your transformation, and it's because you've been doing it on your own your whole life. Your whole life, all you've known is behavior modification, and you've never known the transformational power of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if that's you this morning, all you need to do is see the mercies of God and believe it and accept the gospel. All you need to know is you don't have what it takes either to pay the price for your sin or to be the good person that God demands of you. You don't have it. You can't do it. But Jesus did it for you. He paid the price for your sin. He gives you all of his righteousness as a gift. And all you have to do is believe and have faith. Believe he is who he said he is, and he's done what he said he's done. Believe in the mercies of God. And if you've never done that this morning and you'd like to, I'd love to talk to you. Mark would love to talk with you. Any of our elders would love to talk with you this morning. But we also need to consecrate. Paul, the way he said it was consecrate your bodies. I think in our world, it may look, uh, we may phrase it a little differently. I would say consecrate your time and your resources. Is your physical, real, external life consecrated to him? Now, we can tell ourselves whatever we want. I think there's really one way to really tell. And I'm going to invite you sometime this week, set aside some time and spend some time in prayer, but I want you to take two things with you. Into your prayer time with God, I want you to take your calendar. Now, I know many of you don't have a physical calendar anymore. Uh, I'm amazed. Honestly, this is a 2020 calendar. They still make these. I don't know if you knew this. If you got a digital, if you got it on your phone, pull it up in your calendar. However, take this into your prayer time and take this. Take your checkbook. And again, I know. I was shocked. I found this laying around my house somewhere. If you got it digitally, that's fine. Open up your bank account. Whatever it is, take these with you into your prayer time and ask, is my life consecrated to him? The way I spend my time, my energy, and my resources. Is it offered to his disposal? And not just what you're doing, not just what's on there, but how you're doing it and how you're going about it. You can pray in a negative way, in a positive way. So negatively, ask him. Say, God, will you point out anything that is conforming to this world? Will you point out anything on here that is water leaking into the submarine? And then, and do it physically, in a physical way if you need to. And then present these to him. Present these to him. Say, these are yours. They're at your disposal to use for your service however you wish and ask them, would you transform and renew my mind and my heart as I live these things out, as I do these things? And then whatever he reveals to you, make adjustments, offer it up to him, consecrate it to him, and let the mercies of God take over your time and your energy 
and resources. Men and women, that'll change the world right there if we decide to do that. So, you and I, y'all, we're, we're, we're all about to walk out this door. And maybe in the past we thought of it as worship is over and now we're going out into life. I hope we can think about it in a different way this morning. I hope as we walk out the door, we can think about it as, no, 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 worship is continuing. Because true worship is a whole life offered from our transformed heart. Let me pray for God to help us do that this morning. Lord, thank you. Thank you for a church uh, where we can gather and open up your word together and be encouraged by one another and loved by one another. And we can sing songs to you and, and uh, we, we can come together and not do it alone, but uh, with every member of the body of Christ. Well, what a gift. And as we leave this morning, again, I pray that that sense of worship, that sense of consecration, that it's all for you doesn't end here, that we take it out into our jobs, into our families, into our neighborhood, into our homes, into our friendships, wherever we go. And Lord, we're asking something that we know we cannot do on our own. We're asking you to transform our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so I pray that you, if there's something on our calendar that needs to change, you bug us about it until we follow you in obedience. If there's something in our checkbook that needs to change, I pray you bug us about it until we follow you in obedience, Lord. Because we know that your will is ultimately, it is good and it is perfect. Help us to believe that this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.